Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey listeners, welcome to episode 146 of the Feeling Film Podcast. I'm Patch and with me, ready to get blue in the face, either by talking about this movie or by merging with his own avatar, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello. And frankly, just so you know, I would actually totally merge with an avatar, by the way, if I was given that choice. Ditto. I would totally do that, too. (laughs) Well, this week we finished off our director month by talking about the biggest film in James Cameron's directorial catalog, taking the form of 2009's Avatar. This is just under three hours with a budget of about $250 million, and it is currently the world box office record holder. So go you, James. Um, this film has definitely made its mark on the cinematic world with those numbers, enough to actually cause uh, eventual sequels, maybe, and its own bit of social controversy. Uh, we'll probably get into that, but first, how about a quick announcement, Aaron? Yeah, we like to always give a shout out when we have a new patron, and we are ringing the bell here this afternoon because longtime listener and Facebook group member Rich has ponied up and joined the ranks of the patrons, and we are very excited to have him on board. He will be helping us select our next donor pick episode, which will be coming in late February. We should be recording the January movie, which is Starship Troopers. Uh, and next week, about this time, after you've gotten home from your vacation up here visiting me, Oops. that's going to be a lot of fun. Yep. Uh, but yeah, Rich will be joining us in February and helping us pick. We've already had our Facebook group choose from a long list of 2018 films that we haven't covered. They've chosen five, and so that will be the five films that are being voted on in February. If you would like to become a patron like Rich and support the show, get some voting powers, get access to our catalog of bonus content, you can do that by visiting patreon.com slash feelingfilm. Thanks, Aaron. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and get right into our discussion. You've now entered spoiler territory, so If you haven't seen Avatar or want to join the conversation after watching it, please turn us off and come back after seeing the movie. That being said, I'm going to kick us off with our one word takeaways. And as I was watching this movie, the one word that kept coming to mind is the word connection. I couldn't help but notice all these different parallels inside the movie with regards to connecting. I mean, you have like the humans connecting with the Navi via like the education and the roads and all the things that they're providing on Pandora as a way to connect with this indigenous people. I also saw this connection with humans and their avatars. This is great kind of expositional moment where our main character, Jake is getting introduced to his avatar and says, it looks like him. And his, his partner says, no, it looks like you, this is your avatar, Jake. And um, it reminded me a lot of uh, Pacific Rim and the whole drift, which I guess would be reversed since Avatar came out before Pacific Rim. So strike that, reverse it. There you go. Um, There's also the connection with the Navi and Ewa, the spiritual goddess spirit thing that exists in all things, kind of like the Force in Star Wars. Uh, Of course, the connection between the Navi and the animals. I think it's called the Shahalu. All these big names that I cannot pronounce and will probably butcher throughout this conversation. So I apologize to anybody who loves this language or to the person who made it up. 
If you mess up the word Jake Patrick, we're going to have an issue. Well, it's entirely possible. I can't remember. <laughs> I need characters of like three or less in order to stay fully focused. Otherwise, I just have to have index cards. And then finally, there is Jake and his connection with the Navi people. This is a big part of the narrative. It's his way of ingratiating himself with them, becoming one of them as his avatar. And I don't think this was unintentional. I felt like the idea of connection is something that is threaded through this whole narrative, and it's incredibly important. But I love how Cameron and company really kind of tile this together and give us such a great consistency with that idea of connection. Yeah, that's good stuff. Um, so you would say there are a lot of connecting points within the story of Avatar, I guess? There's at least one that we'll talk about. You know. <laughs> <laughs> there might be more, but there's at least one. Well, the word that I chose for this time around watching this movie was game changer. Steven Spielberg actually called this film emotional spectacle. And I love that phraseology and I would completely have to agree. Anybody that knows me knows I am drawn to this big emotional spectacle, whether it's the historical romance of Titanic or the you know, sweeping kind of fantasy drama that we get in Aquaman or something like this that's more sci-fi in nature. But James Cameron had done that before. He'd done the emotional spectacle with Titanic like we discussed last week. So of course he couldn't just go out and make another movie that was like Titanic, um, copying that $200 million budget. He had to go bigger. He always has to go bigger. He has to do something that no one else has done. So it took him 12 years, Patrick, to make another film. 12 flippin' years. And the crazy thing is that, in my opinion, it was all worth the wait because of the stunning leap forward in how visual effects were used to tell a story. This was the first time ever this was done. Cameron was able to observe on an LCD monitor how the actors' CG characters or their avatars interacted with the CG version of Pandora in real time. And he was able to direct scenes as though he was shooting in live action. That happens all the time now. But that's the thing. It, this is what changed the game. This is what created that new way of doing digital effects. It really, truly made digital and live action movie making become one. And it set a standard for all the blockbusters that have come after. And the result was a picture that actually felt worthy of the 3D format, something that to this day I feel like is completely rarely seen. This was so big. It was so beautiful, so immersive. And in my opinion, I think Avatar still looks better than 90% of the visual effects that we see in new movies today. And we may not experience that next major jump ahead in tech until Cameron finally gives us these Avatar sequels that we've been waiting over a decade for. And maybe then there'll be a game changer too. Well, you make a good point in that I think what Cameron does so successfully is he isn't dependent on the technology to tell his story. He tells his story and he uses the technology to advance it and to enhance it. 
I don't think that he would have been able to create the world of Avatar without the technology that he essentially pioneered. I mean, I'm okay with saying that. And the thing is, this is a story that we're not unfamiliar with. I mean, one of the one of the criticisms that I remember coming out after the movie released was, this is Ferngully. This is Pocahontas. We've seen this before. This is Dances with Wolves. And the truth is, yes, it is. It's all those movies because all those movies have these similar themes. But Avatar does what our friend James Harleman says in his book Cinemagogue. It doesn't tell a new story. It takes an it takes a story and it refreshes it. And I think Avatar takes this idea that a lot of us are familiar with, these ideas that exist in Avatar, and it puts an enhancement on it that is not only visually stunning, but also purposeful. The world of Pandora is one that is worth exploring. And it's why a character like Jake matters, why he exists in some ways, in that he is an explorer. He's a pioneer, just like James Cameron, I think, is a pioneer in this new technology. So seeing Avatar come to life, and as you mentioned in 3D, the 3D aspect of it, was the same kind of value. It wasn't he that he created a movie just so he could show it in 3D. He made the 3D of it to be purposeful. I remember seeing this in 3D. It was the first movie that I saw in that format with the new kinds of glasses that weren't the 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 paper cardboard red green that you know you normally get in a cereal box. And I remember being completely in awe and wanting to actually like hold my hand out to to touch the the trees and the things that light up and it, it's it's mastery is what it is and to know that these things are coming again in the near future potentially really excites me because what's he going to show us a decade later um that's a that's a big question yeah man when i was watching it this latest time I was kind of surprised because I had forgotten all about the opening section where we meet Jake on the planet Earth mm-hmm. and we almost get like this Blade Runner-esque version of like Tokyo yeah, um, where he's in his wheelchair and he's at his bar and they come get him. I'd forgotten all about that and I'd forgotten about the spaceship scene where he's actually, it's brief, but he's on his journey to Pandora. He's been in cryosleep for like six years. The spaceship design. Like, it's barely in this movie, but it's amazing. Like, it, mm-hmm. like the spaceship, it looks like uh, very similar to the one that we saw in, what's the movie that we love? Passengers. Passengers. Yes, that's what it reminded me of. It was incredible um, just seeing how it was, you know, created to only be in that one shot, this intricate spaceship. Another thing that really sh- shocked me was realizing in that first debriefing where he's learning about where he's going when they say the pandora is a moon patrick james cameron doesn't do stuff by accident everything is purposeful this film was intended to be the start of something gigantic it was not just a one-off movie it would be like judging star wars without knowing that empire strikes back and return of the jedi and all of the rest of the story ever happened mm-hmm. because this is a moon like we aren't even exploring the planet that Pandora the Moon is revolving around. Like It's crazy huge in scope, and there is so much to go with. There's so much to explore and so many places to go from here that it made me really excited 
about the potential of of where he could go further out, you know, because of the scale. It's surprising how much Cameron puts in here to just get us started. And we talked about the length of this movie. This was not as long as Titanic, but you mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Cameron doesn't do anything in a small way. He's big, not just in his spectacle, but also in his storytelling duration. This is a long movie. And to know by the end of this that we are only in one facet of the Avatar universe blows my mind because you're right. It, it, it's almost like when you you think about Tolkien and about how in the Cimmerillion, he creates this amazing backstory in order to flesh out these characters that we meet in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Like there's this whole historical thing, this whole backstory about these characters and their their mothers and grandmothers and ancestors that go into influencing who they are. And I look at that and I go, okay, if we start out with this is like The Force Awakens to me. So what The Force Awakens was to A New Hope, I think that Avatar is to Pocahontas or Fern Gully or Dances with Wolves. It's a familiar story that we'd latch onto so that we can get comfortable with that in order to be exposed to the spectacular. And I think that's great. I think if I ever direct a feature film, I'm going to get my feet wet with something that's somewhat familiar to most people. Like Get like, this you... man $250 million, somebody. I'll take it. I'll take it, <laughs> and I'll probably blow a lot of it. On. Ask Netflix. They're throwing it around like crazy. <laughs> or Amazon, you know. <laughs> Those streaming services are going gonna be, gonna to be good for me. But I think it's fantastic, and I, I'm looking forward to, to what's coming and how Cameron and his, his team are going to kind of immerse us more into the, the world of Avatar and not just the world of Pandora. Because, as you mentioned, Pandora is just a moon. It is a moon, not a space station, you know, for Star Wars references there. Well, let's talk a little bit about Jake. Jake Sully is our, our main guy. In fact, he's the one that he's the narrator. He gives us the backstory. He, I'm not a huge fan uh, most of the time of voiceover because I feel like it's kind of a cheat. But when it works well, I don't mind it at all. And I think his narrative, his voiceover helps keep the keep the story going along. But as I was doing research for the movie, I started thinking about him as a character. And one of the questions that I found was was asked, and that's is he necessary to the the narrative? Which sounds kind of like a dumb question because he's our main guy. So you're probably thinking, why are you asking me that question? And so I'm going to read you a quote from from the interwebs. And it says, by the end of the film, you're left wondering why the film needed the Jake Sully character at all. The film could have done just as well by focusing on an actual Navi native who comes into contact with crazy humans who have no respect for the environment. I can just see the explanation. And they quote, well, we need someone, an avatar, for the audience to connect with. A normal guy, read white male, will work better than these tall blue people. And so I want to ask you, Aaron, do you agree with that quote or that ideology that that he's kind of a throwaway, that this movie could have been done just as success just as successfully from the point of view of just a Navi native? Absolutely not. Not even close. Okay. And I actually 
take a little bit of issue with the white savior concept in this film because this is a disabled guy. Like, this is not a hero white guy who is coming in wanting to be the savior. Jake is reluctant. Jake, 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 Jake is there because his brother got murdered. And what we see from him early on is that he is a good heart. He is, um, he says it in the film. He says, there's no such thing as an ex-Marine. You may be out, but you never lose the attitude. It's very true. My dad has said that many times to me. You know, I think I called him an ex-Marine one time in my life, once. And that was once too many. Because you're not an ex-Marine, you're always a Marine. Whether you're serving or you're not serving. And Jake's heroic nature kind of jumps out right there in the beginning when he stops somebody strong from preying on the weak. He's in his wheelchair, for crying out loud, and he goes out and punches a guy. It's pretty awesome, actually, how he does it. Sweeps the leg and, like, falls on him. It's a great scene. But um, I think it's it's pretty cool because he, it harkens back to, like, disabled nom vets or war vets in general who couldn't reintegrate into the world. There was no place for them when they came back, uh, and they didn't know how to get by. Lieutenant Dan, you know, that's, that's Jake in, in some ways. And so here he's given this opportunity, and, you know, he's not there to try and take things over. He's very quickly falls back into that Marine mindset um, as well. He's, he's manipulated by Colonel Korich uh, to kind of do his bidding and feed him intel. He doesn't really understand the science aspect of it. So I guess, and you know, say it's because I'm white. And so it's weird. It's normal for me to see a white guy, but I, I don't, I didn't really think of him ever as white because I saw him as a consciousness within a Navi, the majority of the movie. You know, I right. thought of him as a disabled guy who had the opportunity to not be disabled. Right. And I agree with you. I think that the fact is Jake to the Navi is kind of the same thing as us as an audience to the people of Avatar of the not only the humans, but the Navi themselves. And just like he acts through his Avatar as a conduit to connect the scientists and the military, the humans that have come to Pandora to the Navi. I think for us as an audience, it does allow us to see into the Navi world in a way that recognizes that we're outsiders. And I think that's a strong, I think that's, that makes a strong case because if the, the conflict of the movie is this confrontation between non-Navi people and the Navi people, if the world, if the protagonist of the movie was solely inside this indigenous world, we'd have to make a lot of assumptions. And we would, as an audience, make assumptions about the Navi based on what we see on screen. If they were hunter-gatherers, we'd think they were very simple, like they wouldn't have a lot of scientific intelligence or other kinds of assumptions based on our own cultural biases or historical biases. And what I love about the character of Jake is that he represents us as humans, a, a curious, a, a curious being that wants to eventually wants to find out more about these people that he's interacting with. And he does so through this mechanism of an avatar. And so it brings up another interesting 
interesting point. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's we're walking a mile in someone's shoes. You know, this is a very specific commentary on the Iraq war. That's one of the things that this film has been noted as addressing. Cameron has um, come out on that. And this is a person, especially him being a war vet, who's going into that population that we have made assumptions about. We're trying to tell them we're good while showing them that we're not Mm -hmm. by our actions. And Jake is allowing us as an audience to walk in their shoes from our perspective and understand them and get to know them. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And it also allows us to, at the end, see what it's like for us to stand up against our own, right? Mm -hmm. Jake, Jake is not just a hero for the Navi because he's a, he's a hero for us because he's telling us as folks who may have no problem with bulldozing somebody else's territory who's an alien because we want the unobtainium oh my gosh um underneath their sacred tree he's showing us that you know it sometimes is going to take standing up against your own quote-unquote kind because you're standing up for what's right and you're standing up for what you know is good regardless of your race and so like that's why i don't get the white savior thing like he's he's not saving them because he's the only one that can do it in fact it's not like he has superpowers he's got intel but what else has he got it's not he's not the one that is making this difference um in the fight so it's you know it's very different than the normal white savior films where the white guy is the only one that can make this change i just don't see it like that at all no, I think he acts as a conduit for uniting them and giving them strategies and motivation. That intel, I think, is the only major thing that he provides them. The fact is, he has no other tactical or technological advantage inside his avatar body. In fact, most of the second act of the movie is him learning how to run faster and become connected with the the animals inside uh, on this moon and it's it's frustrating to hear those criticisms because we fail to see the fact that the navi are intelligent people that they have the ability to fend for themselves in fact as the movie opens up we have these military guys that are coming back and they've been they've been like like busted out with with arrows and so we see that the navi know how to defend themselves and that it's not this hey we can conquer you because we want to they the military motivation is that they need jake along with the science folks to find a way so that they can either get them to move or to find a weakness so that they can exploit it and destroy them so clearly the navi are a strong people and i think we're given sort of that stereotypical vantage point from a, from the military side that shows they're a burden when we know that they actually aren't. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And and then uh, lastly, I would also say that I think it's a lazy criticism because when you criticize a story and say that, when your story is literally entirely built around a concept of your consciousness being part of this alien conscious, this alien body so that you can interact with an alien species. Like, how do you do this story without it 
being like this? Like, how do you mm-hmm. do it without it, it turning out like this? You, you just, you really can't unless he's, unless there's no conflict, <laughs> which what's the point of a movie without conflict. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think it is inherent in the narrative, like the, the story and the idea itself calls for this. And like, you, if you're criticizing that, then you're saying the movie shouldn't exist ever, like at all. You're not criticizing the movie as it exists and how it goes about it. You're criticizing the fact that it exists at all. Yeah. I look at him as a a character. Jake is a character as representing this idea of being multicultural. In the landscape of the, 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 the conversational landscape that we live in right now, where there is a constant conflict of not understanding those who don't look like us or those who aren't like us whether it's black or white or american versus non-american this racial other that exists from whatever perspective that we are in whether you're white and you're looking at those who are not white or whether you're black and you're looking at those who are not black that misunderstanding of not being able to know what it's like to walk in a person's shoes um, is a very real concept. It's one that, I mean, it exists in this 2009 movie, but it's one that speaks highly of where we are right now. And I think that one of the successes of Avatar is the fact that Jake represents the ideal person who's trying to understand what it means to be multicultural. And what I mean by that is how he exists as both a human and a Navi. I don't think it's unintentional that in this story, Cameron has decided that these avatars are not just organ organisms that your brain can connect with, but they are part human and part Navi. They're not all one or all the other. And it's explained, obviously, early on that it's that combination that allows that neuro connection to happen when jake or you know in his case his brother originally would connect with these avatars but i think there's also something to be said about how his exploration of the people goes from having to to wanting to like there's a genuine curiosity not for any selfish gain necessarily, but because he genuinely wants to understand what it's like to be someone in the the Navi world, you know? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, I think I think there's something about that multicultural thing too, if, where there's a great line by Neytiri's mom, I believe it is, who she's talking to Jake about interactions they've had with the humans so far and she says we've tried to teach other sky people it is hard to teach a cup that is already full and it's a great line about trying to interact with a colonizer who has already made up their mind like there's no convincing them otherwise giovanni rabisi is fantastic in this film as is stephen lang is two different sides of villains you know one's the corporate mindset of just you know we're gonna get it done at any time you know there is nothing actually matters everything is kind of even it's all about the bottom line dollar whereas Stephen Lang kind of is that mercenary gets off on the violence and the control and the domination and so when you have that 
it you can't become multicultural because you're not willing to listen. You're not willing to engage with the other people, um, the the Navi in this case. And so, yeah, Jake does absolutely he is willing to do that. Um, it's great when he, you know, she tells him, she says, when you're ready, when you're ready. And what we, we end up seeing is it's a matter of when he hunts that beast and he kills it and he shows some respect for that loss of life. And I wouldn't say remorse because it's like the circle of life here, but there's an understanding of the bigger picture of what that animal's life meant. And that's when she tells him, Natiri says, you're ready. And he gets to go on his quest. And so I think that you're absolutely right. You know, he's swept away in that adventurous aspect of like learning about the culture. And it's something that is contrasted because the normal sky people were only on this planet because of its resources. And the only reason that we're there is to take something we want. So yeah. whether it's unobtainium or it's oil, it's something that doesn't belong to us that we need, quote unquote, need. And so we're there to take it. And so we don't really honestly care about the other people. We care about them in context of how to get what we want. And Jake yeah. takes the time to learn and learn about who they are because Jake doesn't want anything. Right. Even though he starts out with some kind of he wants legs is what he wants. And he's promised a fresh set of legs, but that motivation changes over the course of the exposure to this indigenous people. As I was watching it, I couldn't help but think about the way that in Aaron and our faith, how we talk about missionaries going overseas and indoctrinating indigenous people with what we think might be the Christian narrative or the Christian gospel, when really what we're doing is we're indoctrinating him with the American gospel with this is how you're supposed to do church or this is how you're supposed to worship or this is this is how you're supposed to look when you do worship and what you're supposed to wear and it's really interesting to see how the exposure of missions in the 80s has taken shape in cultures overseas that I've seen in the last probably five or ten years and how people are dressed and how they look a lot like us in terms of being American, in terms of how they dress on Sunday mornings when they wouldn't normally wear that during a regular week. And that's not necessarily bad. Um, I know that in, in, in our culture, we don't necessarily equate being a Christian with wearing a suit on Sundays necessarily. We see that as, you know, just more of an action or an act of of, of reverence in some ways, but it doesn't just like being baptized doesn't make you saved. It's a, it's an act of showing that acceptance. And so when I look at how missions is done today in some of the organizations that, that I'm, I'm familiar with, it's more of an immersion. It's more of a understand the culture that you're going to be living in and stay in that culture for a long time because you're not out to change the culture. You're out to share Christ with that culture. And what does that look like? Well, it looks different because a culture may not understand the concept of a cross or the concept of, of a parable or these things that are very much Christian words. 
And I think that for Jake, he has this, he doesn't have a preconceived notion about who these people are because he doesn't have that history. He hasn't been living on Pandora as a scientist or as a military person. So he's not given this preconception about what it means to look at them in one way or the other. They're, they're not people that can give him something in terms of the, the mineral. They're also not people that are hostile, like the military side sees. They're simply a people, and him being part of this project gives him a second chance at living. And he was somewhat reluctant to do it anyway, but he knew that there was nothing else. I mean, the beginning of the movie clearly showed that he had nothing going for him. And so as was only the thing that he had left, this was this was all there was. And so I look at him and I see him as not naive, but impressionable. Someone who is willing to see and be exposed to a world that is different from his and to adapt to it and more so to appreciate it and to honor it. And I think that's what we see as the narrative goes on that Jake represents for us as an audience what it means to understand a culture that's not ours and respect it and immerse ourselves in it and almost celebrate it. And the result is that he is ultimately accepted by that culture. He becomes one of the Navi, even though they know that he is a sky person. And I think that's it's a pretty beautiful image. Mm-hmm. It's very hopeful. And, and, and I, I really, really dug that. Yeah, I did too, man. So when we look at the rest of the movie, we, we see against his character what I see as a lot of kind of one-dimensionalness. Um, and, and to an extent, it's a good thing because I think what Cameron does is he gives us he gives us a a military leader and a corporate like goon who clearly just want one thing. And they're people that are set up early on for us to sort of hate, for us to recognize, oh, these are the bad guys. They're clearly the mustache twirling antagonists that we know are probably going to be become the enemies of whoever the the heroes are. And Giovanni Ravisi specifically as the corporate guy or um, or Lang as the the military guy. What did you think of these characters? I mean, I know you you like them, obviously, but do you feel like what they brought to the story helped elevate it? Well, I mean, yeah, you have to have them. They're conflict. So they absolutely have to be there. And I think that they are portrayed great. Um, We don't get too much of Rabisi's corporate environmentalism issues. Uh, The the driving guy, he just wants the mineral. Um, He's there, like I said earlier, because he wants the actual physical thing because he wants to make money off of it. And so for him, he doesn't see Navi. He doesn't see Sky Person. He just sees dollar signs. That's his goal. And so there's an impartiality to his nastiness. Um, We also see that he is not fully on board. Like he kind of wants to give them an opportunity. He allows for the diplomacy to try and run its course. He's actually in favor of that it just has failed to this point and it's because of the mercs he doesn't care all he sees is that it's failed and so that's kind of what escalates him we also actually get a great moment it was one of my contenders for a cp involving him 
is where he's involved in that moment where the tree has fallen and it's burning in the forest and you just see the Navi screaming, no, no, no. And you, you get this shot of Rabisi's guy looking on in shock at the devastation of it all. And a realization come across his face of, wow, this was the cost. Like, okay, that's a lot. And then we contrast that because right afterwards we see the colonel. And Quaritch says, good work, drinks on me. And it's all backed by, you know, Neytiri mourning over her fallen parents. And it's just the visuals are so stark and so powerful in that moment because you see these two different villains that are ciphers. This is a metaphor. This is the point of this movie. And and I get it. If people don't want to take in that metaphor, then you're not going to necessarily like this story. Porridge is us in Iraq. The burning tree is the burning oil fields. I mean, these are these are not like hard connections to make, folks. But it's okay to make them and think about them. So maybe we don't make those same mistakes. So maybe we consider that the next time that this becomes an issue. And I think Quaritch is, is played great. I actually really like the dialogue. I know that's a lot of people's criticism is the dialogue. Quaritch talks like an old military guy, man. He just does. There's um another, you know, villainous kind of the henchman character in this film as well. Uh, he's like one of those, um, machine gunners or whatever, you know, you know what I'm talking about? He's yeah, a, I can't remember his name, but no, um, I don't know his name, but he's like, he's a gunner on the helicarrier during the attack. And there's a couple different times where he's like, yeah, baby, get some. Yeah. And I, and I know that's what people don't like about this, this dialogue that, that is realistic, Patrick. <laughs> like that's what people who are in the moment who are killing other human beings or other living things, that's how you act in a time of war. It's disgusting. That's what he's showing us. So I think that these villains play their roles fantastically because they get across their point exceptionally well. It shows us what that corporate mindset of just wanting the bottom dollar can get, can lead to. It shows us what the hate and the violent aspect of just wanting to just be empower over someone else and be in control can lead to. And so I love the villainous aspect of the film. Yeah. I think there's a lot about this, including the villains that points to commentary. And I couldn't help but think about district nine, Elysium and Chappie where you have Neil Blomkamp essentially making a commentary on big issues that were or are going on in our world, or at least in the culture that, that he's familiar with uh, and particularly, you have this industrialization aspect and pollution and, you know, conquering a native people. And anytime you make a movie that's allegorical or that presents a social commentary wrapped up in some sort of, in this case, sci-fi or alien-esque-ness, there's the, there's, the, there's the risk of it becoming overly preachy. There's the risk of it being very much like, too on the nose and as an audience as someone who's seen this uh, a number of times did the admitting that this is what's going on at least part of what the what the movie's trying to do do you feel like it worked for you did it feel heavy-handed at times or did it balance itself out for the most part for you yeah i mean i i think 
I think that's what I've been trying to say, at least, is that it, it definitely works for me. And I don't have any problem with it whatsoever because I would rather watch commentary like this on those issues that is done in such a fantastic way that sweeps me away in this epic fantasy that can give me something to think about and consider in the real world while enjoying this epic story. I mean, I wrote in my review of this film recently on Letterboxd how it's striking that this is so similar to Aquaman in a lot of ways. Um, because Aquaman has some of the same concepts at play with environmental issues and uh, a fear of colonization and a fear of the outsider coming in who doesn't understand you and just wants to take over your space or take over your tech and how that gets dealt with. And obviously the stories are not directly comparable in every way, but like in the bigness of them and the epic and the visual storytelling that we get to see. And so it totally works for me. Uh, and I think that writing it off because of those things is a real shame. Yeah. I, I don't know if I completely agree with that because at some point you make a social commentary, but it's either done to a point where it feels overly done. Like you've heard that story before. And again, I mentioned other movies like this dances with wolves you got The Last Samurai. These stories are, are done a number of times. You have to make sure that the way in which you tell it is somewhat interesting. Now, I will say this. I do agree that the dialogue is probably one of the weaker points for me. I didn't really care for it quite a bit. And it wasn't necessarily that it didn't feel realistic. It was just that sometimes it felt a little too campy. Only because other parts of it felt like it was trying to be pretty serious. And so it reminds me a lot of when we, you know, with True Lies, the lines in that were fine because it knew what it was trying to be, an action comedy. This felt like it was trying to touch on the world of being epic and romantic, sci-fi, all these different things. And when you have campy lines coming out here and there, it kind of went, Eh, for me and but it didn't destroy the movie experience for me by any means i mean there are the tender moments between between our two characters here between jake and Tiri were very well done their chemistry is fantastic i love the fact that we get this great training montage beforehand to kind of connect them to each other before we get their connecting moment whatever that was with the with the tree i don't know how to describe it necessarily but you have a lot of those really great moments and they weren't destroyed by the you know the weird lines here and there i i can just see those criticisms and i i partly agree but when it comes to like the social commentary i don't feel like it was very heavy-handed at all i felt like it was sort of a it was it was just enough to tell us ah this is what you're talking about but not so much as to say, here's what you should do about it. And at the very least, it left us feeling like we have a sense of hope in terms of what being a part of a culture could be beneficial for everyone involved. Totally. And I think that the, if there's one section where I can understand some of the maybe 
white savior narrative. It's probably in the whole Turok Maktau element of the film where you have this great legendary beast that is, you know, slaying it is indicative of reaching this legendary status amongst the people. And then you have the outsider who is the one that is able to to topple this beast because the outsider comes with unique knowledge. Um, he has, it, it's a great scene. I mean, I absolutely love the section of the film to be honest, because I think it's fantastic where he's like talking about how, you know, y- this thing is so big that it never looks up and he's betting his, he's just going to, he's going to hope that that's the way it works and go at it from above. And sure enough, he is, but he's able to, you know, take control of that beast. And that's what ultimately gets their attention. I don't, I, I'm able to reconcile it because I don't think that beating the beast is what is shown to have the Navi suddenly give him respect and follow him. But it, it is a method of getting their attention when they have been quick to shun him. I think that his inclusion in their world already leading up to that is what ultimately allows them to then follow his leadership. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It it really starts with an interesting conversation that Antiri's mom says to her, you will train him, you will teach us, you will teach him our ways and how she was very resistant to that but his willingness to learn and him getting better, there's this great kind of bookended shot where um, it's him learning to fire the bow and arrow. And he's not, you know, it's, it's during that montage initially where he's, he's doing it. But then later on, he's back. They're back at that one thing, that, that bow and arrow scene. And he's looking and he looks at her and she steps back like she sees in his eyes. Wow. You really got it. You are becoming one of us. You really do understand what it means to be one of us. And then the pivotal moment for me was not when he became that, when he became the, see, Turok Noctau. Turok Moctau. Yeah. Yeah. His World of Warcraft character or whatever it was, you whatever. know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but when he conquered the, the, the dragon, the, his, his personal dragon thing, whatever that was, where, she said, yeah. what's it called? They're called, well, the little ones are called E-Clans. They call it the Turok Moktau, but it's, yeah, it has another name. It's got some like dinosaur name. So the, that instance where he has to choose his and where the, his, his thing chooses him and he only knows it because it wants to try to kill him. To me, I think those are the moments that solidify him as part of the, the clan. And we see that conflict with, other Navi who still don't want to buy into it because he's still an outsider. Yeah. And the, the last one I think that goes with that is really that solidifies the way that they accept him is that when they, before they actually follow him into battle, after things have all gone bad and they're getting ready to gear up and and let him lead them, he goes up to his quote unquote brother um, Sute, and he asks for permission to speak 
and says, will you do me the honor of translating? Versus the beginning of the film, the first time that he interacts with them, he tells them, I am worthy and you should listen to me. And there is a drastic difference between me telling you that I'm worthy and you should listen to what I have to say and me being humble and asking you to listen to what I have to say. And it is a huge, huge moment because that is what then bonds him with the already leader of the people uh, and brings them together. And I I think that's another part of what, for me, undoes a little bit of the the white savior criticism because it's not somebody coming in from the outside and taking control. It's somebody humbling themselves and asking and being accepted. Right, and his ability to stab him, the ceremonially, the the stabbing to kill him, to sacrifice him, whatever that's called, to um to end his life in a way that honors him, I think is a huge deal because he would never want to do that because he cares about him enough, but he's honoring his wish by saying, "Do this for me," and he does. Um, it's it's beautiful and in a weird way to see that. And, but I think it further emphasizes what you're, what you're talking about is that's a fantastic point. Well, I wanted to talk about a couple other things before we move into our connecting point. First, let's just give some love to some of the technicals. This is obviously a huge, huge uh, breakthrough in visual effects. And as you mentioned before, watching this 10 years after the fact, it still feels incredibly new. And I'll be Captain Obvious and say it's the it's the neon, man. It's all that futuristic neon. For me, I love the world building of Pandora and seeing how there's there's familiarity, familiarity that builds onto uh, originality. It reminded me a lot of the world in Annihilation, where we got these creatures and these plants that we recognized, but that had a weird mutation because of what was happening in the atmosphere. And I think that it's a smart thing for Cameron and his designers to say, okay, let's bring in these familiar plants, but let's add this color to them, or let's make them react this way when Jake touches them. I love, love, love that moment where, <laughs> where Jake is touching those little mushroom things and they kind of, they kind of curl up and they hide. Because that's what I would do. If I'm in this world, I want to I want to touch everything. It reminded me a lot of the abyss when we get that scene where she's, you know, getting a chance to touch the alien. It's this like bright pink type thing. And gosh, I can't wait for that thing to be in HD so it looks a lot more vivid. But I love the fact that we we get a visually stunning world that's being built from uh from the mind of James Cameron. Yeah, it's I mean it's it's definitely still holds up today and I think that it's underrated today. I don't know why this movie gets again, it's like Titanic, this big blockbuster that suddenly everybody wants to go back after the fact and diss on and think that it, there was big problems with it when they all went and saw it like five times in the theater and enjoyed it then, but now all of a sudden there's there's these big issues. This is one of the most epics. And this is where, you know, the things like Aquaman, those comparisons come in. The plants, like you mentioned, um, I love the ones that like 
retract when you go to touch them. The big ones that are on the ground, um, the beasts, you got this hammerhead rhino thingy. You've got these like six legged armored war horses um, that I remember very vividly the night scene with the floating jellyfish like seeds of the sacred tree that I was reaching out in the theater trying to touch them. That's how vivid the 3D was in this movie. I I don't know that I've ever felt like that since then, which is ridiculous, honestly, um, that we haven't been able to replicate that. But this was so immersive to me, and the world building was so cool. Um, just so many interesting ideas. And visually speaking, the landscapes, I think, is what I love the most. Once we get up in the sky and we start seeing the floating mountainous islands, I was like, man, I want to go hiking there. And then I see them walking across vines, connecting mountain to mountain. And I'm like, never mind. I don't want to do that. That does not look very fun. That looks very scary. I'll just wave to you from below. Um, And I like that there's like a, a cool little like throwaway description made. He says that they're held up by a magnetic effect because unobtainium is a superconductor or something like he doesn't even know. And I love that. I love that Jake's kind of like it's in one of his diaries and his narrative, his narration. And he's kind of like being us in that case. So it's like Cameron's telling us, like, don't get hung up on it. Just take it in. It's amazing. Like, enjoy the view. And I really did. Um, and, and especially in that final everything about the final battle sequence, man. When the Harriers and the Jets are like flying in in formation amongst the islands that are floating in the sky. And I mean, it is mind blowingly awesome. James Cameron can shoot action like he's got it down. You see Terminator, you know, True Lies. Now this he knows what he's doing and for him to do it within the concept of this like incredibly uniquely drawn world, the trees. The tree that like you connect your tail or your head or whatever to and everything is, you know, sending basically intelligence throughout the ground. I mean, that's a super cool concept. Uh, uh, and uh, yes, in a lot of ways, it works like the force. So what? It's unique. It's different to me. And, and the last thing I think about is the force when I'm watching it because I'm being mesmerized personally. Yeah, absolutely. And so your mesmerization mesmeration i don't know what that word is maybe i just made it up leads to my last question which i think you've already answered and that's are you looking forward to sequels and i think the answer is a definite yes so let me make that a step further and go what would you like to see in these potential sequels that are coming up well the last line we get from jake is pretty cool he says the aliens went back to their dying world only a few were chosen to stay. And he's talking about the humans, the aliens going back to their dying world. He's not talking about the Navi. So they kick the humans off the planet. Um, I don't know because I, I, the, the conflict is what's going to drive it. And I would expect based on having seen so many movies and stories that Somehow the humans that get kicked off the planet and sent back are going to end up bringing forth more humans that cause more problems. Um, that's the typical way to go. It can be done well. I would love to see 
an exploration of whatever that planet is. Uh, I want to go to I want to go to more planets. There's my number one thing. I don't know what I'm going to get, Patrick. Is James Cameron? I really just have no freaking clue. But I would love to see an exploration of more planets. I want more world building. I want more visuals that I haven't seen before. Take me underwater. You know, take me, you know, into a cave world. I I don't know. But I want to go visit other planets. I want to meet other species. Um, and then I, I trust him that the plot will be interesting and, and have some emotional resonance to it. But yes, I am a hundred percent now having rewatched it this time. I am so glad that I did. And I, I truly, truly believe that when this film came out, if its sequels had followed on within two or three years right after it, just like we get nowadays with every single big series, this would have been one of the biggest fantasy series hits in all of history and people would love it but the delay works so hard against it um and people have to get rehyped but i'm i for one i'm definitely hyped for it yeah i think two and three are scheduled to come out in 20 and 21 so they've done principal they finished principal shooting but um, and i hope i hope that they re-release this by the way and i want to see this in a theater the month before I go see the first sequel. I would, I, I mean, there's a totally missed opportunity if they don't do that. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to say it now. So mark it down in your calendars. I said it today, whatever you're listening to it, that Fathom Events is going to do it. They're going to do a trilogy. They're going to do Avatar and then they're going to show you Avatar two and three. No, three will be released. I don't know. I'm thinking they're going to have it as a Fathom event of some kind where you'll have all three at some point after the first two have released. And then maybe after the first, the, for the second one, maybe you'll do a double feature of some kind just because of the, the time delay. Well, I'm looking forward to it too. I I'm like you. I think that we have a lot more of the world to explore other tribes, not just the, the people that we were hanging out with. But I also am thinking if there is a planet that has another indigenous people, that if we're going to bring humans back and we're going to take advantage of that avatar technology, we're going to have warring factions of other things, other beings that will so have humans. Humans are going to make avatars of something else to yes. come fight the Nati- That's what I think. Brit, dude, that's anime is crap. That's oh yes, that's what I want. I bet I'm going to be disappointed now if that doesn't happen. So <laughs> I pre-apologize now if it doesn't happen. Better call James. <laughs> Quick, change the script. Change it. Change it. Go back to your principal photography and bring that all new story in. <laughs> oh man, that would be great. Well, I'll tell you something else that's great, and that's the connecting point. Yes, there's a lot of connections, but as I've read through our notes, I am delighted to say that for the third time in four weeks, we have the same connecting point. Is this is this the case? It's a Cameron thing, I think. I, I think it is. I think it's it is. Wild. Either either he's really, really good or we're really, really bad at picking the most obvious connecting point. But I'll go ahead and let you lead off uh, with this one. Yeah, for me, um, it was Jake's first Avatar experience. And it's when he wakes up as the Avatar, there is such a cool experience of going into that world with him for the first time and realizing 
the height and the size difference of the body, he immediately retains all of his personality traits, of course, and he refuses to listen, which is bad. But it's totally understandable for someone who hasn't been able to walk since his accident in years. And all of a sudden, he's in his body and he can move. I'd run too, and I would immediately want to test out my new body in every way that I could, which is what he does. And I think that what makes this so great is Cameron's ability to let you strongly feel his amazement and his wonder and his joy. It's really difficult for us to imagine, I think, what kind of exuberance he must be going through as a paraplegic, because this is not something that most of us have ever had to deal with. But I was able to get the sense of it very, very well. And as an audience, I think it's a continuation of us being exposed to Jake's rule breaking and his hard-headed mentality that is ultimately going to continue fueling his actions throughout the film for better and for worse. But even as the lab assistants warn him to stay put, he just is completely overcome by emotion and runs off into the woods to figure it out on his own, which is exactly how I think so many of us like to learn, you know, by doing, not by being told. Absolutely. I absolutely adore this scene because this would be me and you. This would be anybody who gets a chance to not only get his legs back and be able to walk, but to literally stand tall, to be in this blue, crazy body, and to be able to do all these things that humans can't do, to be able to actually look down almost like you're a transformer at human beings at such a crazy height. And it it plays itself out in such an amazing way later on where he says, I mentioned this earlier, there's a line later where he says, my feet are getting tougher. I can run farther every day. I love that his avatar doesn't define him, but that he defines his avatar. And that by the end of the movie, he is literally one with his avatar. He is a Navi in the cultural sense, in the physical sense, in the biological sense. And all that with the fact that we still haven't lost Jake. He is still Jake Sully. <laughs> and he will always be that guy, but he will be a changed person, not only because he literally is in a different body and li is living that way forever or from now on, but mentally, emotionally, culturally, he is one of these people. And he has fully embraced not only the outside, but also the inside. And it's this really interesting kind of synthesis, this connection, this coexistence with who he was, who he is, and, and who he eventually becomes. And um, it all starts with that one scene where he's starting that journey. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree, um, obviously, because <laughs> we, we had the same one. And I, I love it because I think that that's what this film is about. And primarily, I mean, that's what the main story is about. Yes, it has lots of messages that are sprinkled throughout it metaphorically, but the story is being told through the primary idea of what it would be like to transport yourself into this Jaeger, just like you're in Pacific Rim. Like that's, that's what this is. This is an anime version, a live action, you know, animalistic race 
with, with anamorphic, anthropomorphic, I don't know. Whatever. It's another race that you're transporting into humanoid. That's the word I was looking for versus a mecha. But it's the same concept. And I, I think it's really cool. A, a, before we end, I just wanted to point something out. I realized we didn't really talk much about Neytiri. I had completely forgotten that she was voiced by Zoe Saldana. So that was a really cool um, surprise for me. And I'm wondering what color of humanoid Zoe Saldana is going to play next. So she's done blue. She's done green. She's done purple. Uh, she did purple. I get, was she purple at the beginning of? She's well, yeah, green. She's, gr- she's green. You're right. Yeah. Thanos is purple. That's right. Sorry. I was thinking she was. Yeah. yeah. And then she's just normal in Star Trek. Yeah. So. Well, oh, is she? Oh, yeah, she is. That's right. She's not alien. But I'm just she needs to she needs to kind of like do a red character or something. Maybe she'd be like Hellboy's daughter or something. That'd be good. Um, That'd be good. <laughs> but but anyway, I, I really like the character Neytiri. And it, we talked so much about Jake, but Jake gets nowhere without Neytiri. And she is the one who speaks truth in his life. And the one that grounds him, the one that is able to show him what it's, and she's, she's the bridge for her people. Jake may be the one that ultimately leads the charge in the end, but it's Neytiri that bridges that gap between the best humans, the best sky people, and the Navi. She tells him when she first meets him, you have a strong heart, no fear, but stupid, ignorant like a child. It's Mm -hmm. a great kind of evaluation of him in a nutshell right away and then there's a lot of those you mentioned the moving scenes between them this is this is a sweet love story the way that they fall in love is tender and it's there's no i don't know malice there's no grossness to it at all no um and that final scene when she finds him the real him on the ground and she goes to put that rebreather mask on him and she resays that line that they've been saying to each other throughout the film I see you. I see you. It's beautiful. I love the imagery that 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 line "I see you" gives us, and mm-hmm. what it means to actually see someone, um, specifically within the context of this. Like you're seeing into their soul. It doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. That so that's great as well. It's kind of it's really like the you jump, I jump of this movie. I think so. I, I absolutely yeah. I think that's that's for sure. And you know, Avatar is is fitting right in with Cameron's mo. You have a love story at the center of a big giant conflict that's happening. And while this isn't as obvious, I feel like Natiri's growth is equally as important as Jake's because she is apprehensive about teaching him, about bringing him in. But she learns equally as much from being around him and what she needs from him as he does with her. And I think it's what makes their chemistry and their relationship that much more genuine and not just something of like a weird human alien relationship, which can be kind of fun too, but not in this movie. Not in this movie. Not in this movie. (laughs) No. (laughs) Oh man, Aaron. Well, we're done. Director month has come to a close once again. The third annual event, I think went well, James Cameron. I know you're listening and we hope that we've done you justice with these four movies. Um, If you're wondering why we didn't talk about T2, then go back and listen because we did cover it. And it was awesome as well. Um, listeners, thank you guys for being a part of this. We love the fact that you are listening to us. We always just get a kick out of the fact that people want to hear our voices. So we appreciate you listening. And be sure to check back in the next couple of weeks. We've got January's donor pick, Starship Troopers, 
coming at you as selected by our wonderful patrons, followed by a movie that is near and dear to at least one of our staff's hearts, Jeremy. It's actually his number one movie of all time, Groundhog Day, to celebrate the upcoming holiday. We're going to be covering that. So be sure to tune in and join us for those conversations. We'll see you later. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.